Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause coming to you from Isolation Studios. I hope that you're all doing well, that you're staying safe, that you're washing your hands, not touching your face, all the stuff that our parents told us to do that turns out wasn't such bad advice after all. You know, I know this is a trying time for a lot of people and I know that staying in is, is desperately important but it's also difficult as the weather changes and and as the days drag on but it's something i think that's really important and you know i got inspiration from the weirdest place the other day i was listening to the radio and the traveling wilburys came on and you know i like the traveling wilburys i guess as much as anybody uh, but one line stuck out one line stayed with me a little bit from one of their songs and it's every day is just one day so I know that as we sit here in our homes, self-isolating, not going outside, except to maybe go to the grocery store or whatever, that it seems endless, that it seems like uh, that it's never going to stop. And when I thought about it, and this line just kept coming back to me, every day is just one day. Tomorrow will be a different day. Every day is just one day. We just have to get through today, check that one off, put it in the history books, and then we'll think about tomorrow, tomorrow. So I don't know if that will give you any kind of comfort, but it certainly kind of worked for me a little bit. So if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that every now and again, I pop up in your feed with three more suggestions for movies that you can have a look at to help past the minutes and the seconds and days and weeks possibly uh, that we're inside. We're watching more stuff. Uh, here are some suggestions for movies that came out not so long ago. I've been digging into the past a little bit, but uh, there's a few movies here I wanted to talk about uh, today that you may have just missed. We all have busy lives and uh, you can't see everything. So here are three, starting with A Quiet Place. Now imagine living in complete silence never raising your voice over the level of a faint whisper. No music, no heavy footsteps, you can't even sneeze. Silence. Then imagine that your life depends on staying completely noiseless, and that's the situation for the Abbott family and the rest of the world in the effective thriller, A Quiet Place. Real-life couple John Krasinski, who also wrote, produced, and directed, and Emily Blunt are Lee and Evelyn a mother and father fighting for the survival of their kids in a world where making a sound, any sound, can be deadly. Deadly blind aliens who hunt their prey through sound have invaded the world, turning noisy people into human cold cuts. The family lives in silence, using sign language and eating off leaves to avoid the clinking of cutlery on China. But what happens when a newborn baby cries? Can life go on? The silence of the first half of A Quiet Place is deafening. There is no spoken dialogue for about 40 minutes, just dead air. And in a way that many filmmakers use bombast to grab your attention, Krasinski uses the absence of sound to focus the audience on the situation, with very little information being passed along. We don't know where the aliens came from, why they're terrorizing Earth, or how many there are. Ditto the Abbots. We know nothing about them. The connection the family feels is transmitted through looks and actions, not words. This isn't a story where character development is all that important. This is a tale of survival, pure and simple. 
I asked John Krasinski if he was nervous about making a movie with very little sound. I mean, I remember, you know, uh, rewriting the script, so I got that spec script, and it was really, truly one of the best ideas I had ever heard. And then they had so many great tenants of the script that I was working on and so many things that you see in the movie, they had had these bigger moments, but I, I really wanted it to be this metaphor for parenthood. And even then it's, that's a heady idea too. So you say like, well, I hope we have tension and pacing and all the stuff that most movies would have. And I worried that lack of dialogue would be the thing. And then about day two, three, you realize wait a minute, maybe the thing I'm most scared of is our superpower. Like, this right. is actually super engaging and so exciting. And the fact that people are going to experience sound in a completely different way is really, it was really fun. Then it, then it sort of gets you all fired up and you want to, you know, you want to perfect it. You want to get it right. One of my favorite things about this whole experience has been listening to audiences understand what's happening. Right. So usually the first 30 seconds of the movie you still hear people shifting in their seats. Maybe they take a couple bites of popcorn and then you realize collectively in the room, you feel people say like, "Uh Oh, I can't do this. And I, I love that. I mean, my, you know, there's no better compliment for this movie than it's an experience that it's not just a movie that you feel like you're a part of something as a collective. Tension grows in the first artier half and then pays dividends in the second, more genre-based half. Set up out of the way, Krasinski raises the stakes, putting the family directly in the way of the creatures. And like all good genre movies, as the story escalates, it becomes not simply about predatory monsters, all teeth and giant ears, but about a universal truth. In this case, it is about a parent's primal need to protect their kids at any cost. Krasinski nails this, providing both B-movie thrills and chills necessary to the genre with a deep undercut of humanity. A Quiet Place is a nervy little film. Other filmmakers might have tried to find a way to wedge in more dialogue or spell things out more clearly, but the beauty of Krasinski's approach is its simplicity. Uncluttered and low-key, it's a unique and unsettling horror film. Now we have a look at a documentary. Lauren Greenfield has made a career of doing in-depth films about superficial people. Movies like Kids Plus Money and The Queen of Versailles examine the relationship between wealth, excess, and humanity. Her documentary Generation Wealth begins as a look of the lifestyles of the rich and not so famous in Los Angeles, but blossoms outward to become an international study of the price of greed. Interspersed with her personal story is a blend of archival material from her earlier films and follow-up interviews with her subjects. We meet the son of a rock star whose outlook on life was shaped by the idea that he'd never be as successful as his dad. There's Florian Ohm, a former hedge funder now on the run from the FBI who describes his former existence as, quote, a hamster in a diamond-studded gold wheel while sucking on a fat cigar. Notorious Charlie Sheen playmate and porn star Casey Jordan is a poignant reminder of the downside of a life spent becoming a human commodity. Early on, interesting points are raised as to how and why we've become so greedy. I asked Greenfield about the line she used to describe the movie. It's not about the rich, she said. It's about the influence of affluence. Yeah, I mean, it is about the cult wealth culture that kind of influences everybody through media and through exposure, but it's really about 
this movie is not about the 1%. It's really about our aspiration for wealth across class, across um, kind of from all different sectors. The research shows that the images of luxury and affluence in the media have increased exponentially in the, over the last 25 years. And as that happens, the effect is that people think that these um, kind of the world of the wealthy is more normal than it is or more common right. than it is, and they want those things. And so, yeah, keeping up with the Joneses has literally become keeping up with the Kardashians because that's our new reference group. And it's not only um, unrealistic, it's also fictional. It's kind of by definition um, unattainable. Plastic surgery, status, and social mobility are essayed as Greenfield aims to contextualize the effects of unbridled greed in the world. The movie works best when the stories she tells are smaller, more personal. Jordan's life, for example, is a cautionary tale that effectively puts a human face on the very points about materialism and hubris that Greenfield wants to shine a spotlight on. In the end, Greenfield wants us to know that greed, despite what Gordon Gecko so famously said, is not good. The final movie we'll have a look at is a thriller comedy with Jason Bateman that is more comedy than actual thriller. Jason Bateman and Rachel McAdams are Max and Annie in Game Night. They're two competitive people who meet at a trivia night, bond over obscure Teletubbies facts, fall in love, and get married. They're so into games, they even play Just Dance at the wedding reception. Cut to years later. They are comfortably tucked away in the suburbs and hosting weekly game nights with their friends, but when a murder mystery game turns into a real kidnapping, the players are sucked into a world of intrigue as they try to solve, quote, the game. This isn't a Hitchcock movie. There's no real mystery in game night, just some twists and turns and engaging performances from a cast who are game to have fun. It's more about spending time with the characters on their wild night out. Much of the humor comes from the casual back and forth between Bateman and McAdams. They interact like an old married couple, not people in a bad situation. Bateman is a natural at this kind of deadpan comedy, and McAdams, who generally features in dramas, keeps pace. Their chemistry is one of the reasons this slight comedy works as well as it does. The biggest surprise, and certainly the film's oddest performance, belongs to Jesse Plemons as Gary, the creepy cop next door. Best known for his work on Breaking Bad and Fargo, he mixes deadpan delivery with a thousand-yard stare that is as unnerving as it is funny. I asked Plemons about playing a character who is just a step or two out of sync with everybody else. Well, that's... That's what was kind of interesting was that it, it did feel different, and that's what obviously drew me to the part. But at the same time, what I really loved was that it, it seemed like Gary was in his own movie or he snuck in from some other movie <laughs> and just seemed really out of place. <laughs> and, um, and, and the part was, I mean, the script in general was so well written and um, I just kind of fell, fell for him immediately and felt for him and his uh, situation, the poor guy. I think no matter what genre I'm, I'm doing, um, I still try and bring as much tr 
truth and honesty to it, and uh, that's also you know the type of comedy that I respond to most. Not to say that I don't like broad comedy, but um, I feel like that's something that I've that I've sort of been able to play around with in the past. You know, with, with Landry, there were some definite uh, comedic elements to him. So um, it's the the only difference is. It, it's hard to escape that thought in the back of your mind of, oh, I hope, I hope people laugh, you know. <laughs> Game Night isn't exactly slap your knee funny, but it is an amiable enough comedy that makes up in charm what it lacks in procedural thrills. Well, that's it for this week. I know the minutes and days and weeks seem to be piling up on top of us. Feels like a great weight sometimes, but we can get through this. In isolation, we are united, and we will get through this one movie at a time. I'm Richard Krauss. Thanks for listening.